Hi, and welcome to the Life Source Christian Church Audio Lounge with Senior Ministers John and Anne Juliano. Have you ever wondered about how to better connect with God? Well, that's exactly what we're going to help you with in this week's show, where you'll learn how to more fully love God, grow spiritually, and help others. Okay, so we've got twin boys, which means when you're raising boys, you've got to teach them from an early age um, precepts. You, you know what a precept is? Um, all the thou shalt nots. Um, what to do and what not to do. So, so when you've got twin boys, you've got to teach them you know, precepts such as thou shalt not kill. That was a fairly important precept to teach our boys because twin boys are prone to homicide. Uh, we had to teach our boys from an early age, thou shalt not bear false witness, because you know what young boys are like. Uh, a window gets broken with a football, and you know it was the kid across the road. And so we had to teach our children, there are things that you ought and ought not do. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not tell lies. And the way we would impress these precepts upon them was with a smack. Don't get all judgy. Um, <laughs> Unlike in New Zealand, in Australia, we know the difference between discipline and abuse. And so we would smack our children because when they were just small, you can't reason with a two-year-old. But they do understand a tap on the bum. And so we would teach them precepts. But as they grew older, um, we stopped smacking them. Um, in fact, these days, Joe is taller than me. Um, he smacks me. So, so what we did was we taught them that behind every precept, there's what's called a principle. There are principle. There are reasons why we do and do not do certain things. For instance, we taught our kids, "Thou shalt not kill," because, and here's the reason: you know, who wants to hang out with a serial killer? Like, if you start killing people, no one's going to want to be your friend. And worse, you could end up in the electric chair. So, so there are good reasons not. To kill, we taught our children, "Thou shalt not bear false witness," because here's the reason: Have you heard about the boy who cried wolf? You know, one day you'll be telling the truth and no one will believe you. So, so don't start telling lies if you want people to trust you. There are good reasons to do the right thing. Now, here's the problem with most Christian education. We stop there. And if you stop there, all you do is produce calculating devils. You produce pragmatism where they do the right thing, but entirely for self-centered reasons. And so they don't commit murder, but only because they're afraid of getting in trouble. They don't tell lies, but only because they're concerned about getting caught. And so true education goes beyond a principle, because how many of you understand, behind every precept, there's not just a principle, there's a person. See, the reason that it's wrong to kill is because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so taking life is wrong, not just because it violates another person, but because it does an injustice to the very character and nature of God himself. The reason it's wrong to tell a lie is because Jesus is faithful and true. And so when you tell a lie, you're not just ripping off the person to whom you are lying, but you're actually um, besmirching the very character and nature of God because Jesus is truth. That's why we tell the truth. Now, when you understand that, you start doing the right thing, not out of pragmatism, but out of worship. Does that make sense? That's got nothing to do with my message. But I just thought it would be interesting. Um, how many of you have read the entire Bible? From go to woe, like from, from Genesis to Revelation. Hardly any of you. It doesn't matter. I'm going to save you the trouble right now. I, I'm, I'm going to summarize the entire Bible for you 
in three words, and so you won't even have to read it. Don't, in fact, don't even worry about trying to read the Bible. Okay, I'm just going to sort it all for you right now. All right. So here's the entire Bible in three words. Um, the Bible in three words is um, creation. In the beginning, God. And so God creates the world. The, the, the next word I would use to summarize the Bible is the word sin, but a better word is fall because that describes the consequences of sin. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they fell from their lofty position of grace. Make sense? Okay, and so the third word would be the word redemption. Does that make sense? And so that's the Bible in three words. You can see you're all really impressed. All right, we'll do it again till you appreciate it. So, um, so the Bible in three words um, could be freedom. How many of you know God created us for freedom? God's first words to Adam and Eve, you are free. In fact, specifically, God's first words to Adam and Eve, you are free to eat. I could follow a God like that. Like, like of all the things he could say to people having created them, he says, you're free to eat. Yay, God. In fact, if you go through scripture, it's amazing the priority God gives to food. The first thing he says to Adam and Eve, all of the religious festivals of Israel are built around feasting. Uh, when Jesus is about to go to the cross, the last thing he does is, well, I'm about to die, let's have supper. Um, when he rises from the dead, what does he do? He cooks breakfast for the disciples. And when we get to heaven... The Supper of the Lamb. And so God loves food. The first thing he says to Adam and Eve is you are free to eat. And so God created us for freedom. Now, some of you are thinking, hang on, Macpherson, you don't know the Bible half as well as you claim, because whilst God said you're free to eat of any tree of the garden, he then said, but you can't eat from that tree. See, they weren't free. There were restrictions. And the reason you think that is because you're so brainwashed by Western popular culture, you think freedom is an absence of restrictions. But absence of restrictions is not freedom. It's slavery. Think about it for a second. If you eat without restraint, you're not free, you're obese. If you drink without restraint, you're not free, you're an alcoholic. If you have sex without any boundaries, you're not free, you're promiscuous. When God says you can do anything you want, you're free, but don't touch that. Don't touch that was not a a restraint or a limitation. It was actually to safeguard and ensure their freedom. If you remove all restraints and all boundaries, you end up not free, you, you end up a slave. And so Adam and Eve fall from their lofty position and they end up slaves to their own passions. But how many of you know through Jesus, we have liberty? Bible in three words. You're a tough crowd. All right. No, I'm going to keep doing this until I get the respect I deserve. And so let's do it again. Um, The Bible in three words, wholeness. God created Adam and Eve for shalom, for wholeness. Uh, But then at the fall, um, relationship is broken vertically and horizontally. Uh, God says, what have you done? Adam says, don't blame me. The woman you gave me, she made me do it. The woman blames the snake. The snake doesn't have a leg to stand on. And so um, trust is broken, not only between mankind, but between man and God. Um, Adam and Eve doubt the good intent of God towards them. And so God created us for wholeness, but because of the fall, we end up not just slaves to our own passions, but we end up broken, but then through Jesus, trust is restored. Make sense? Let's do this one more time and try and tie all this together. This is important. You've got to follow this. We could say the Bible in three words is really creation. The next word I would use here, considering everything we've just spoken of, would be the word reversal. Can you see how the fall is a reversal of everything God intended? God intended us to rule and reign with him, but sin caused us to fall, and we identify more with the beasts of the earth rather than the God in whose image we are made. 
God intended us for freedom, but we ended up in slavery. God intended us for wholeness, but we ended up in brokenness. And so the Bible is creation reversal, which would then make the ministry of Jesus the reversal of the reversal. Does that make sense? That's not my message, but I just thought it was interesting. Okay, let's talk about the first four great subjects of the Bible. What are they? 66 books in the Bible. There's thousands of subjects in the Bible. I mean, you can never exhaust studying the Word of God. So there's so many subjects. So so as a former journalist, I'm curious because you always try to get the important stuff up front. And especially in 2018, when most of us have ADHD, you want to get like the important stuff in early because most people aren't going to get to the end, right? So, so I'm curious as to what does God think is really important to get up front before we all lose interest. And so, so these are the first four subjects of the Bible. They, they are um, God. Makes sense, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the first subject of the Bible is God. The uncaused cause. The self-existent one. The God who has need of nothing and no one. I tried to think the other day of something that God needed. Like God doesn't need shelter in which to uh, take refuge. He doesn't need medicine to feel good. He doesn't need the temperature to be just right. He doesn't need fabric to clothe himself. Uh, There is nothing that God needs. By definition, God needs nothing and no one. The moment you're talking of anyone or anything that has need, you can be sure you're not talking of God. We could keep going, but we've got to move. Um, First subject of the Bible is God. Second subject of the Bible is life. Um, God forms out of the dust of the earth a human form, and then breathes his own breath into it and creates living souls made in his image. So God creates life. You got that? Would you agree that's the second subject of the Bible? Third subject of the Bible is choice. Having created Adam and Eve, God says to the lives he's created, he says, uh, you can eat of any tree in the garden except for that one. If you eat from that one, you will surely die. Notice how God defines choice. God defines choice as fully informed consent. In other words, God doesn't keep information from them. We live in a culture where people are trying to censor and keep certain opinions at bay, but that's not how God operates. When God says he gives us choice, he's talking about fully informed consent. This is why Moses said to the children of Israel, I set before you life and death, blessings and cursings, choose life. But God is not trying to keep information from us. He wants us to have full disclosure so we can make fully informed choices. That's true consent. Does that make sense? Okay, so what's the fourth subject of the Bible? Well, the fourth subject of the Bible is sex. (laughs) Finally, I got your attention. And so, so, so God says to Adam and Eve, here's how life is going to work. A man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so these are the first four subjects of the Bible. God, life, choice, sex. Here's a question. Why did God invent sex? I mean, he didn't need to. God could have caused people to multiply through any various means, but but he created sex. So, So the question begs to be asked, why did God create sex? What was he thinking when he decided that's how the human race would multiply and increase? Why did God invent sex? I'll tell you why. Because God wanted you to know what it's like to be him. 
Think about it. When a man and a woman come together in sexual union, more often than not, so often that when it doesn't happen, we typically think something must be wrong and we go to a doctor to find out what's going on. When a man and a woman come together in sexual union, we create life. And then a mum and a dad raise those children and gradually release them to have choice. The reason God invented sex is because God wanted you and I to know what it's like to be him, to create life over which you have no control. And so, 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 so God creates sex. In this sense, you could argue that a sexual relationship between a man and a woman is the highest celebration of what it means to be made in the image of God. Because it's through sex between a man and a woman that you get to do what God himself does. You create life. And then you raise and gradually release that life to make choice. And then one day, my sons will marry girls and they'll have sex. And they'll find out what it's like to be God. To create life. And to raise and cultivate that life and to release them into choice. And then one day, my grandchildren will, will, will marry girls and they too and on and on it goes. Are you with me? Okay. So, we've said that, that the Bible is creation reversal. So would it not surprise you that if we live in a fallen world, this is not the pattern that 20th century popular culture uh, adheres to. Our culture is quite different. The most important thing in our culture is sex. There's a reason for that, by the way. We live in a secular culture where we have decided we, we don't need God at all. And so we've pushed God to the margins. The problem is we're still spiritual people. And so we're, we're spiritually frustrated because we're trying to fill a spiritual void with the latest iPhone, and you can't do it. See, this is why Hollywood starlets end up um, overdosing and suiciding, and we all think they're mad. They're not mad. There's only one thing worse than not having what you want, and that's having everything you want, only to realize you can't fill a spiritual void with the latest car. You can't fill a spiritual abyss with a larger home. The only thing worse than not having what you want is having everything you want only to realize I still haven't found what I'm looking for. We are spiritual beings, but we've pushed God to the side, yet we still have a spiritual void that needs to be filled. And that's why our culture is obsessed with sex, because sex is as close as you can get to the mystical in a world without God. Does that make sense? Why did God invent sex? Because it's through sex that you get to do what God does, create life, choice. Well, we don't want God, but we still have this spiritual need. And so sex becomes the be-all and end-all. Not because our culture is dirty, our culture is hungry. When you understand that, you stop judging people in the world and you start realizing they're not dirty and perverted, they're hungry and needy. And looking to fill a void and find no other way because we've pushed God to the margins. Now, here's the problem. Once you start experimenting with sex outside of the boundaries God determined, you end up with consequences, right? Consequences we don't like. And so suddenly you become pro-choice. And we make choices that um, damage and even destroy life. And so we've become gods ourselves. Can you see that's the culture wars? Can you see why we don't talk to each other anymore? We talk at each other because we've got people coming from exactly opposite directions. And so um, when you understand that, you, you realize why our world is so fractured right now. 
and, and why everything is, is so difficult. Notice this, that um, pro-choice and pro-life are not right-wing, left-wing ideas. You know, it's, it's, it's not like conservatives are pro-choice and, and progressivists are uh, pro-life um, or the other way around. Um, God is pro-life and pro-choice. Pro-choice was not the leftist's idea and pro-life was not a right-wing idea. Pro-life and pro-choice were both God's ideas. Just notice the order in which he put them. And so that right there is the culture wars. Make sense? All right. So if you're going to understand anything in life, it, it all comes back to the person of Jesus. And the person of Jesus, if you understand Jesus, the Bible says all things are from him, through him, and to him. In other words, if you get Jesus right, you get everything right. But if you get Jesus wrong, you miss everything. Everything comes back to how you see the person of Jesus. Even, should we take a detour for a second? We might as well. Let's talk politics. Um, Even a political system comes back to how you view the image of God. For instance, um, in Islam, there's no concept of, um, of, of God as anything but a singularity. Uh, Muslims believe that um, Allah is not a father, he has no son. So Allah is an eternal singular, right? So um, in Islam, um, you get um, unity um, with no diversity. Because that's the nature of Allah. Allah is not a father, he has no son, he's an eternal singular. And so their object of God is, is unity but no diversity. Well, then you end up with an authoritarian regime, right? If you go to an eastern country, um, they have millions of gods, and, and so they have diversity, no unity. That's why you get chaos in the eastern world. Their political system is chaos, but it's not an accident. It all comes down to how they view the person of God. They have millions of gods, so it's diversity but no unity. Well, you just end up with chaos. In the western world, um, we believe that God is one but three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Not three gods, one God, but three persons. Co-equal, co-eternal. Not one God doing a pantomime, acting out three different parts. One God, but in three distinct persons. So, so Christianity is diversity in service to unity. Does that make sense? That's why our system of government is full of checks and balances. That's why we have, you know, legislative, executive, etc., etc. But it comes back to our view of God. Western democracy is not an accident. It comes back to how we view the very nature of God himself. That was a diversion. Anyway, if you want to understand life, whether it's your political system, but particularly if it's yourself, you've got to understand the person of Jesus. Because if you get him right, you get everything else right. Genesis chapter 1, verse 22, if you can put that scripture up. It says that when God created mankind, um, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So, so if you want to understand yourself, you've got to understand God. But because we're made in the likeness of God. So if I want to know what I'm supposed to be like, I just need to know what God is like. If I'm made in his likeness, well, what's he like? Now I understand myself. This is why we're so confused. We've pushed God to the margins and now we can't even decipher what's a boy and what's a girl anymore. The world's not gone mad. It's an entirely logical consequence of dismissing God and pushing him to the margins. If I'm made in the likeness of God, but I wipe God from the horizon, how do I know what I'm like? Even basic biology is confusing to me now once I've removed God from the scene. 
If I want to know who I am, I don't look within, I look up. What's God like? If I'm made in his likeness, if I understand him, I understand myself. So here's the question, what's God like? Well, the scripture has kind of a clue here. God said, let us, notice the plural pronoun. Who's he talking to? Let, let us make man in our image. He's not talking to angels. We're not made in the image of Gabriel. God is talking to himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, conspire, and they decide we're going to make mankind in our image. So, so what is God like? Well, the Bible says, and it's probably my favorite definition of God, God is love. It doesn't just say that God is loving. It says that God is love. They're two very different things. In order to love, there's got to be an object of your affection, right? You can't love if there's nothing and no one to love. So, so here's the question. God is not just loving. He is love. How can God be love? Well, the answer is that he is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Love must have an object for its affection. God, by nature, is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which means that for all eternity, God has existed in a relationship of love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit points back to the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. And so for all eternity, before there was anything and anyone, God is love. It's his very nature. Does that make sense? Now, what does love do? Love gives. For God so loved the world, he gave. So this is the nature of God. For all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed in a mutual relationship of giving and receiving. The Father gives to the Son. The Son points to the Spirit. The Spirit points back to the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. And so there's been this dance for all eternity where the Godhead lives in this mutual relationship of giving and receiving. And then God says, let's make mankind in our image. So what am I supposed to be like? God created me to be a lover. And what does love do? Love gives. Now I understand what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. To be made in the image of God is to be a giver. And this is the power that God gives to every person, the power to give. Whether it's towards your spouse or your child or your employer or your neighbor, the power that God gives us in every relationship is the power to give because that's the nature of God. Let me take this a step further. Have a look at the next scripture. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. The Lord said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'm going to make a helper comparable to him. Um, so God creates everything in the universe, right? And he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he creates mankind and he says, yeah, not good. Um, which confirmed a lot of the fears most of the women had had. And, and so, so, so God says to Adam, not good. And, and listen to what God says. He said, it's not good for a man to be alone. Now, we all think God's concerned about his need for companionship. But that's not what God is. He's not worried that he's going to have no friends on Facebook. When he says it's not good for a man to be alone, here's what God is saying. He's saying, you can't represent my image on your own. Because what's the, what's the nature of God? Love. What does love do? Love gives. Adam's alone. So, so you cannot represent my nature because you've got no one to give to. God's not concerned that Adam has no friends. God's concerned that Adam can never reflect his image because the image of God is to give. 
And so God says, you can't be alone because alone you can never reflect my image. That's why the Bible says a person who isolates himself rages against all wise judgment. You never become a better person by sitting on a deserted island for years and years and years. You just end up talking to your volleyball. And so, so, so God says, you can't be alone because I created you to give. And so, so you need an object for your affection. So I'm going to make a helper comparable. Not the same, comparable. Equal, but different, complementary. Now, we know what he's going to do, right? What's God going to do? It's not a trick question. He's going to make Eve, right? So, so watch this. This is verse 18. The Lord said, it's not good that a man should be alone. I'm going to make a helper comparable to him. Okay? And we're all like, yes, God's going to make Eve. Except he doesn't. Look at the next verse, verse 19. Out of the ground of the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, the birds, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So, so, so watch what happens. God says, Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. Um, and we're like, yeah, God's going to make Eve. And, and, and then God's like, oh, squirrel. Like literally a squirrel. <laughs> Unless you want to call it something different. What, what do you want to call it? And, and God lines up all the animals and, and gets, gets Adam to name them all. So has God got ADHD? What, what's, what's going on? God is trying to impress upon Adam... The understanding that on your own, you can never reflect the nature of God. Adam lines up all the animals and starts to name them. What does Adam notice? The first thing he notices, they're all in pairs. Unlike Adam. Second thing he notices is there's nothing he can give to these animals that they could appreciate. I mean, you can pat a dog on the head, but Adam's got so much more that he could give, and none of it can be appreciated by a dog. And furthermore, there's nothing Adam can really receive from a dog. I mean, a dog can, I guess, fetch the paper off the front lawn, but, but, but I mean, that's hardly significant in terms of the depth of Adam's soul. And so Adam's standing there realizing, I can't give or receive anything from these creatures. And that's bad because Adam's already realized he can't really give to God either. I mean, he can as a creature to a creator, but not on equal terms. And so now Adam realizes, I can't do what I'm created to do. Now God creates Eve. After Adam has realized, on your own, you can never reflect the nature of God because the nature of God is to give. And if you have no one to give to, you can't reflect his image or his nature. Make sense? Okay, next one. So, God creates the woman. And then he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. I always thought it was pretty Shakespearean. You know, the two shall become one flesh. It's quite poetic and kind of romantic. And then I thought it's actually a biological truth. Think about it. You, you are a complete entity. Like physically, you, you are a, a whole unit, total unit. My wife called me a complete unit the other day, but that had nothing to do with this message. Um, and, and so you're a, you're a complete unit in and of yourself, right? For instance, you have a complete muscular system, respiratory system, skeletal system, nervous system. So, so all of your systems in and of themselves are complete, right? Except for one. There is one system within your physiology which is hopelessly incomplete. Your reproductive system. Every system in your physiology is perfectly complete except for your reproductive system which is hopelessly incomplete. So when does your reproductive system become complete and you become whole? In the act of sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. 
In sexual intercourse, a man provides something for the woman that she does not have, and a woman provides something for the man that he does not have, and that's why the Bible says the two shall become one flesh. Even the act of sex is a celebration of what it means to be made in the image of God because it's a mutual act of giving and receiving. Now you understand why when God created someone for Adam, he didn't create another man. You know the old joke about if you know God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Ha, ha, ha. It's a North Queensland joke. But... But there's a theological truth to it. The reason God didn't create a man for Adam is because if God had created a man for Adam, what could Adam have given that man that that man didn't already have? And what would Adam receive from that man that Adam himself did not already have? And so God couldn't have created two men because Adam would be unable to reflect the nature of God, which is to give and to exist in a mutual relationship of giving and receiving. Incidentally, this is why we call the sex act making love. God is love. What does love do? Love gives. And so God sets everything up so that we can reflect his nature and his image. Make sense? So, we've already said that the Bible is creation reversal. Jesus, of course, is the reversal of the reversal. So, So if God creates us with the power to give, but the fall reverses everything, is it not surprising where we live in a culture where we don't exercise the power to give, we exercise the power to take? And so that's why we have feminism. We've covered pretty much every other topic tonight. I thought we might as well throw that one in as well. Why do we have feminism? No matter what you think of what it's become, the reason we have feminism is because men exercised a power God never gave them. God never gave men the power to take. He gave them the power to give. But sin reverses everything. So instead of exercising the power to give, we exercise the power to take. And what do you do when people take from you? You become defensive. But women went a step further because women are smart. And they figured out, hang on a second... God created the world to live by this ethic. Give, and it shall be given. But that's not the way the world works. The world works by a different ethic. Take before it's taken. And so women decided, we're not just going to be defensive, we're going to get on the front foot. If you're going to start playing by those rules, we will play better and smarter than you. And so now we have a whole world running on an ethic of not give give and it will be given, but take before it's taken. And who can live in a world... Like that. Let me bring this to a conclusion. I was watching the project on the 10 network, not something I, I advise. <laughs> and, and, and they were talking about the golden rule. You familiar with the golden rule? Yeah. You know, the golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you're a parent, you know the golden rule, you've taught your kids. And they were saying on the project that every religion has a version of the golden rule. And I'm, I'm thinking, that can't be right. Because I mean, Jesus is, Jesus is unique. Even amongst unique men, he's unique. Jesus is not a Xerox. Jesus did not come to earth and sing karaoke. Jesus is not aping ancient religious leaders. What do you mean every religion's got a version of the golden rule? And so I did some research. And I found that every religion has got... Well, it's kind of like the golden rule, but I would call it a silver rule. Sort of like New Zealand at the Commonwealth Games. Let me show you this to you, and then we'll tie all of this together. Um, Genesis, uh, Matthew chapter 7. Here, here's the golden rule. Jesus said, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, because this sums up the law and the prophets. That's the golden rule, right? So what's the golden rule? Do unto others as you would hope, maybe one day they might do to you. 
Jesus repeats this in Matthew 22. Have a look. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pause there for a second. Quick detour. Have you heard people say, we just got to love everybody. Pastor John, we just need to love everybody. How many of you know that's the second most important thing we've got to do? Not the first. The second most important thing is to love everybody. The most important thing is to love the Lord. Here's why. If you don't love God first, you don't know how to love your neighbor. My kids say to me, Dad, if you loved us, you'd give us ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's precisely because I do love them and I know how to love them that I don't. It's because I understand their makeup that I know that you don't love them by giving them ice cream for every meal. Now, if all you do is love your neighbor without first loving God, you end up damaging your neighbor, not with love, but with sloppy sentimentality that makes you feel good, but destroys them. That's the culture in which we live, and many churches are going that way. But they say, well, we've just got to love everybody. You don't know how to love everybody unless you first love God. When you understand the nature of God, you know how to love people, because what are people meant to be like? Well, they're meant to be like God, so I better know what God's like. Then I know what you're supposed to be like, and I know how to love you into it. Make sense? So, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. This is the first. The second, love your neighbor. So here's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the projects say, yeah, every, every religion's got a version of the golden rule. So I did some research. And so, so let's take a look at some other religions, because it's interesting. Here's the first one. Is it uh, Krishna? Krishna says, you can sum up all of Krishna's teaching with this. This is the sum of duty. Do nothing unto others which would cause pain if done to you. Now, can you see, it's like the golden rule, but profoundly different. In this regard, Jesus' ethic is positive. Do unto others. Uh, you notice Krishna is negative do nothing unto others. Let me prove to you, this is not an anomaly. Let, let's go to the next one. I think we've got Confucius. Confucius says, is there one word that will keep us on the path to the end of our days? Yes, reciprocity. What you do not wish yourself, do not unto others. Can you see again? It's like the golden rule, but, but it's profoundly different in that it's negative. Let me give you another one. Um, Buddha simply summarizes all of his teachings with a three-word phrase, do no harm. Can you see that outside of the Christian faith, your greatest hope is to not be violated? Outside of Christianity, that the most you can hope for is that no one will violate you. Let's go to the next one. Muhammad uh, says, none of you has faith unless he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. And that sounds like Christianity until you realize historically, brother is another Muslim. Doesn't apply to infidels. Jesus was once asked, well, who is my brother? And Jesus told a story of a Jew and a Samaritan. The Jew was down for the count. The Samaritan could have kicked him while he was down. But instead, the Samaritan exercised the power God had given him, even towards his enemy. My son Joe once came home from school and said, Dad, is it true we've got to love our enemies? I said, yes, that's what Jesus said. He said, what about our arch enemies? I said, well, son, that's different. You, You don't have to love your arch enemy. And so the Samaritan exercised the power God had given him, the power to give. And so can you see the ethic of Jesus is profoundly different to the ethic of Muhammad. Let me give you one more in case you decide to become a Wiccan. Um, Wicca says, harm none, do what ye will. So, so all of these ethics are entirely negative. Did someone just snort? Sorry. <laughs> I was trying to figure out, why is it that Jesus has a positive ethic. Give. 
unto others. Do unto others. Love your neighbor. And every other religion has a, a negative. By the way, I'm not knocking these other religions. I quite like them. Because I think they're an improvement. I mean, if you've got a culture where it's take before it's taken, do no harm, according to Buddha, is a better ethic than take before it's taken. It's an improvement. But here's the thing. It's not enough to change anything. It's only enough to ghetto yourself and try to not be violated. See, do no harm. Do nothing unto others that you would not like done unto you. It'll protect you, but it does nothing to change the world. In other words, it doesn't reverse anything. Only Jesus is the reversal of the reversal because only his ethic is positive. Well, only his ethic could have been. The difference between Christianity and every other religion is that Christianity has Christ. Jesus is the only one who could have said, do unto others, give unto others, love your neighbor, because Jesus himself is love. That's who he is. It's not in the nature of anybody else to do that, but it's in his DNA. And so when I say yes to Jesus and that the Spirit of God comes into my life, not only does God begin to change me, but now he brings me to exercise the power that he gave me to actually participate in the reversal of the reverse that sin bought. Do you follow? And so when you understand the nature of God, you understand yourself. What does it mean to be made in the likeness of God? It means to give. And so what power does God give me? God gives me the power to give. So I'm never powerless in any relationship. I've always got power towards um, my partner, towards um, my children, towards my um, boss, um, the power to give. See, see, we live in a world of take before it's taken, which is why most people go to work and, and leave on Friday with their pockets stuffed full of paper clips and pens. Because I think, well, he's going to screw me, so I'll, I'll just take before it's taken. And the whole world operates by that ethic. But you and I are different because of the person who, who lives within us and empowers us by his spirit. It's the power to give. And so whatever relationship you've got, whatever trouble and difficulty you have, if you exercise the power God gives you, the power to give, not only does it make you more like the one in whose likeness you're created, but you actually bring the power of heaven to bear to reverse the direction of that relationship and to start to bring healing and health. This is why Jesus and Jesus alone is the hope for humanity. Because only Jesus can reverse the reversal. And the privilege that you and I have in a culture that is going the exact opposite direction of everything God intended is not just to reflect his likeness so that we become more like him, but actually to participate in the reversal of the trajectory of culture so it turns and our communities become increasingly like what God intended. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much that when you looked at us, you looked at us with love and with a heart to give. Jesus, while we were still sinners, you died for us. And so, Jesus, I thank you that you don't then leave us powerless, but you enable us to exercise the same power in every situation and every circumstance. And Lord, whether it's at home or work or in the community, I thank you that you always leave us with options, the ability to give as we would like, as we would hope one day it's given to us. And as we do, not only do we become more like you, but the power of heaven is exercised to reverse things, to bring change and to set things right. I pray 
that you would help us wherever we find ourselves to participate in that reversal, even as we reflect your image and nature, and in so doing, be part of the answer in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for choosing to listen to the Life Source Christian Church Audio Lounge. If you like this week's podcast, then please share it with a friend. More information about who we are is available at lifesource.org.au. On behalf of Senior Ministers John and Ann Giuliano, we look forward to connecting with you next time at the Life Source Christian Church Audio Lounge.